an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew starts his gospel account, with a genealogy, which, let's admit, is a pretty dry way to start a good story, unless you're a genealogical historian, and I'm pretty sure we have at least one of those in our congregation. Think about all the other ways this good news of Jesus could have begun. Luke starts with the angel Gabriel's dramatic visit to Zechariah, the future father of John the Baptist, in the temple. John the Evangelist begins with that beautiful poetic prologue, the word was with God and the word was God. Mark takes a different approach. He skips all the introductory bits and jumps right into the action and starts with John the Baptist's call to repentance along the Jordan River. But Matthew, Matthew starts with a list of 42 generations, winding all the way from Abraham down to Jesus. If you have enough patience to get through all 42 names, you discover that Matthew is actually trying to do something pretty exciting. He summarizes why he starts with the genealogy in the verse that comes right before today's gospel lesson, right before we hear about Jesus' birth. Matthew writes, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. It's perfectly symmetrical. From the calling of Father Abraham to be the patriarch of God's people until the destruction of Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian exile till the birth of Jesus, God's Messiah, 14 generations each. Three times 14, 42. It's perfect. But if that's the point that Matthew is trying to make, that Jesus is born at exactly the right time, he has a pretty funny way of doing it. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way we hear at the beginning of today's gospel lesson. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a minute. Matthew bothers to trace Jesus' earthly ancestry all the way down from Abraham to Joseph, but then he tells us that Joseph wasn't really Jesus' father after all. What a funny way to start the good news. I wonder what Matthew's really trying to tell us. It turns out that God has everything planned perfectly, all the way down to the 42nd generation. But Matthew also wants us to remember that God's perfect plan doesn't always fit our earthly expectations. Because if human history, if our expectations were the only thing that mattered, then Mary could have given birth to Joseph's son the good old-fashioned way. That's how God had always brought anointed leaders and inspired prophets to the world before. Remarkable human beings, 
graced with God's power, filled with the Holy Spirit, had served God's people in admirable, even miraculous ways throughout the generations. Because Joseph's son would be a descendant of King David, he would have a natural claim to that earthly throne. There is no reason for us to expect that God would intervene in the course of human affairs in any other way, especially when the numbers line up so beautifully. But for some reason, this time was different. When his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Even though we still place so much emphasis on the importance of the virgin birth, saying it every week in our creed, I still think we underestimate how significant God's activity was in the birth of Jesus. In a couple of hours at our Christmas pageant this evening, the youth who are playing Mary and Joseph are juniors in high school. They are 17 years old which is pretty shocking if you think about it. But the real Mary, the one in the Bible story, was probably only about 11 or 12 when this took place. And Joseph was only a year or two older. Because back then, families arranged marriages for their children even before those children were old enough to have children of their own. And those betrothals were as significant as marriage. They could only be dissolved through divorce or death. So after Mary was engaged to Joseph, she would have lived at home under the protection and control of her family until the day came when she was old enough to have a child. And when that day came, the entire community would gather together to celebrate the fulfillment of that marriage promise that everyone had been waiting for for years. So when God shows up and interrupts that plan, when Mary is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, it upset the natural course of things in a way that would have threatened to tear not only their family apart, but even to rip apart the whole village. This pregnancy was God's way of doing something that history both anticipated and yet no one could have ever seen coming. Joseph, son of David, the angel said to him in a dream, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In this dream, Joseph learns a little of what God is doing with this child, and we get to learn it too. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Jesus, or Joshua, or Yeshua, they're all the same name. It's a name that means God saves. What a perfect name for the child who will grow up to claim the throne of his ancestor David. What a great name for the one who will become the deliverer of God's people from the Roman imperial oppressors. But that's not how the story works, is it? No sooner had the angel revealed the name of the child than it gave voice to a different kind of salvation, a kind of salvation that could not be achieved through any earthly king. You are to name him Jesus, the angel said to Joseph, for he will save his people 
from their sins. That's not the sort of Savior that could be born to Joseph, the son of David. This child would be Emmanuel, God with us. It seems that God had not brought God's people to the 42nd generation since Father Abraham in order to raise up for them just another mighty king, even a king who would save them from their Roman oppressors. Instead, God was giving them Jesus, the one who would save them from their sins. That means that even though this child would inherit the throne of David, he would never rule on this earth in this life over a kingdom the way his ancestor did. And yet, he had come to establish God's reign on the earth. Sure, this Jesus would deliver God's people from the forces of evil, but he would accomplish that victory not through military might, but by suffering for the sake of the world. Everything that the prophets had told about this child would indeed come to pass, but not in the ways that human history expected. And yet still, the perfect fulfillment of God's plan. That's a beautiful thing, how God works. But it can also be pretty disappointing, can't it? Sometimes we want God to show up and rescue us from the trouble we face here and now. Sometimes we get frustrated that God won't fight the earthly battles we want God to fight for us. Sometimes we even feel like giving up because the Savior we want, the one we've been expecting for so long, isn't the Savior we've got. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay to feel like giving up because the salvation we're looking for isn't the one in front of us. How do you think Mary felt? How do you think Joseph felt? That's the strange and beautiful thing about the way God works. The salvation God gives us doesn't depend on our sense of timing. It doesn't really depend on us at all. It's also a salvation that can't be defeated even by our biggest disappointments or frustrations. It's bigger than what we can see. It's more significant than what we can imagine. It's even more perfect than what we could orchestrate with the most perfect timing we could imagine. We want God to come and save us from this moment, but God's plan is always to save us for all time. In Christ, we have been saved from our sins. Why does that matter? What good is that? Because now nothing can keep God's saving love away from us. We've been freed from the power of sin, so there's nothing that stands in between God and what God is bringing to us. Sure, those struggles we face here and now are real and they are hard, but we know that they have no power over us. Because of Christ, they cannot win. If the victory we had been given through David's son had come instead in the form of another king, another prophet, another leader, then no matter how perfectly timed that person had been, once that chapter in human history was over, we'd be right back where we started. 
In the birth of Jesus Christ, God has given us our Savior. In him, our Emmanuel, God is with us. We don't have to wait for anything else. Thanks be to God. Amen.